Brent, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we got a single email about scale last week. Did you see anything about that? No. And I was expecting quite a, you know, at least at least one, but we didn't even get one, which leads me to question some things. But did, did we get any boosts? No boosts. No boosts about scale. Did you see anything about scale? No, no. Now that you mention it. No. Hmm. I, do we want to go to scale? I mean, we're going. So, f- like I declared last week on the episode, we're going. But then, like, nothing. Radio silence. I mean, I, I, I think maybe a couple things in Matrix. But otherwise, total radio silence. And I wonder, when do we go and when do we not go? Do we go just because it's a Linux event and so therefore we should go? I, I'm not sure what to do. Yeah, we probably need a draw, huh? I mean, spe- yeah. speakers we want to see, community events happening. Or uh, perhaps um, a critical mass of audience members who want to hang out. That could be one, too. Yeah, because I think, you know, now that we're independent, we can't just really go to anything. So it's like we really have to be careful about travel because that's a very expensive cost. And the production while we're on the road is really expensive. And it, uh, well, um, people have to plan around it, right? Like it's a, there's a cost to just organizing a whole thing in general. We want to make sure those count, too. But then at the same time, it feels like, I don't know, like, how could we not go to something on the West Coast? So I'm really and, torn. And Brent's never been. It's true. It's embarrassingly true. I want to, I definitely, regardless of what we do, feel like we should do something here at the studio before scale, because especially it's right around 500. That's just like, we got to do something. But I, I guess, I don't know. It's something about the travel and everything around it. I don't want to do it unless I get a strong signal that it's worth doing. And I, I don't want to have to like, turn to a sponsor every single time we want to do something like this in order to just pay for it. I'd like to be able to pay for it ourselves or yeah. through like audience contribution. And I don't really feel like if there's no excitement around it, there's not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and maybe it's just easier just to stay home. Or maybe I'm getting old. Hello, friend, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Well, coming up on the show today, we're going to take a deep dive into some really innovative open source networking tooling that you're going to love. And I will report back on my first major NixOS upgrade. Not one, but two machines had to be upgraded. And yes, NixOS does have releases. And yes, you do have to take steps to upgrade. Uh, I'll tell you about where things went a little sideways. And then Wes and I came up with a really simple solution to do HTTPS for my next cloud, my jellyfins and all of that. So we'll tell you about that solution, which I feel like is my go-to solution for years. I'm really, really excited about what we got set up after last week's episode. So we'll tell you all about that. We have a great guest joining us and then we'll round out the show with some great boosts, some picks and a lot more. So before I go any further, let's say good morning to our friends over at Tailscale, all of us together. Let's head over to Tailscale.com, a mesh VPN protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. Go say good morning and try it out for yourself up to 20 devices at Tailscale.com. And of course, a big good morning to our virtual lug. Hello, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello, hello. 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 Hey, Brandon. Hello, Brent. Well, I'm not mumbling today. Strong and clear signal. Absolutely. Hello, everybody in there. We also have a dozen just up in the quiet listening area of the mumble room, just getting the low latency Opus stream. What? Nice to have you there. 
So yeah, um, this is the part of the show where I talk about us going to scale 20X and encourage you. I still encourage you to go March 9th through the 12th, even if we're not going to be there in the Pasadena Convention Center. I'm excited that scale is happening regardless of if we end up making it. I think that's why I wanted to go. Right. I just want to support the fact that it's happening. Keep happening. Let's get this energy back up. And great crew down in Pasadena. Really great crew down there. But love them. Just saw them. I've seen some of the people in Pasadena more recently than I've seen some of my family members. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that says more about our audience or about your family, but know, I'm I not going to get into yeah, that. Right, right. So it's up in the air. I think we have to we have to kind of figure out if you want us to go, if you want us to tell us that story, or if you just maybe we shouldn't bother. I'm not. I guess I'm asking for feedback. This is like the most unrefined kind of discussion point in the show in the last few years, but mm, we'll go with it. Yeah, and please hit us up at Linux Unplugged dot com slash contact for all of that excitement yeah let us know what you think i want to talk about something great that did happen before we get into the whole show today because we do have a lot to get into but um we've talked about NixOS over the summer and i wanted to just do a few month follow-up now that it's been running in production for a while and i had to do my first NixOS upgrade i was using i think it was 2105 and now nix 2211 has been released and <laughs> Nix is kind of a rolling OS, kind of, because you can actually mix and match unstable and stable on one system. But you can you could think of you could think of Nix rolling as the unstable release and Nix stable is the official release. And so when they release a version, you do actually have to take some action to upgrade. Otherwise, you will just stay on the twenty one oh five release. And a couple of my systems work. Right. You'd set them up that way. Happily been using the packages ever since. Mm hmm. Jupiter tube. Not. JupyterTube up on Litnode uh, is on the new release, 20, uh, 22.11. I went in to go, after I'd figured all this out, because at first I didn't figure it all out. But when I, after I'd figured it all out, I was like, <laughs> well, working. let's go apply this new skill set. So I'm like all excited and I SSH into Jupyter.tube and I go to do the upgrade and it's like five packages. And I'm like, hmm, that doesn't seem right. So I go to look at the NixOS configuration. I'm like, oh, dang it, it's already up to date. <laughs> Nothing to do. <laughs> So it, there is actually a few things you have to do, and uh, it's pretty straightforward, but I, it's like all things with NixOS. I find the language around this confusing, and it assumes a lot of, uh, well, like you understand the uh, NixOS configuration language inside and out. It assumes you have the context for where this should go in the configuration and all of those things. But once you get through that, for me, it's an uphill battle, but it's one I'm willing to do because it feels a lot like when I was first learning Linux. You know, when I didn't really understand what an RPM was or a deb was. Oh, gosh, yeah, no kidding. And Wait it, until you heard about Dbus. <laughs> I still don't really fully appreciate and understand Dbus, dude. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, but it really was one of those, like, kind of like, all right, I'm willing to do this. I feel like it's worth it. There's going to be a payoff at the end of this process. Right. That's right. how I feel about Nix. And so I learned that I had to change my Nix channel, and I had to point it at the new release. And then I learned I had to go in my configuration file and tell it to look at the new release. And then after I'd done that and updated everything, it was just a matter of telling it to rebuild and switch. It was actually really, really simple. So I went out and did it on a few other boxes and ultimately upgraded like three different systems to the new release. And all of them went really smooth, really smooth, including my Odroid. Oh, that's nice. That's kind of a big test. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Over the summer, I suppose, that you kind of radically swapped out all the all the pies, redid stuff on the Odroid, and after centralizing a bunch of stuff, I mean, 
it's kind of a big test for this new build out. This was one of my first big upgrades since doing all that. What would you, I mean, what I'm trying to get to Wes is like, I can tell I am still really ignorant to the way all of this works and just figuring out the language is still where I'm learning. Like, what would you call that? What, what stage is that? That's it's super like at the beginning. And that's why I had to lean on you for the NGINX stuff later that we're going to talk about. Like, how would you describe that stage? Is it? Well, I mean, you kind of have to rebuild your understanding of how you put a system together, right? Like, you know how to do it if you were just going about and updating, you know, the the Ubuntu release or to the next Fedora. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you have to, you know, find your new footing with all the, the different mechanisms, the way things are set up. And with Nix, because it's like starting from the build system on up, there's a lot of assumptions that just no longer hang true anymore. Mm-hmm. Even though it's wrapped in a language, you know, some some of the terms are the same or look the same at the surface level. So you kind of get like, oh, yeah, well, it's a package manager. <laughs> you know, I'm installing stuff and I'm doing upgrades, but it's it's a functional system. So uh, it's really more like various pointers and hashes getting updated and repointed. Yeah. Um, and the end result, though, is that, man. Man, is it great to be able to just get everything totally current, run on the latest kernel, the latest packages, and everything just keeps on ticking. And if there is a bug, if there is a problem, it catches it before it does the upgrade. And this happened on one of my systems. I had a I had Sparrow Wallet installed. It was it was depending on a version of OpenJDK that Nix is considered insecure, and it it bugged out before it completed the upgrade. And for me, it was like, well, I could just remove that and install that later. So I just took that out of the config, reran the upgrade, went flawlessly. Yeah, and you've kind of got that double system, at least two, right? You can you can do the build, and you can be pretty sure that, like, at least most of the stuff in terms of getting all your config stuff, getting the packages available, mm-hmm. that's going to catch stuff there. And then you can even, you can just switch right to it, or you can do a test and kind of see if you can start that new system without switching the main system to it and make sure all the services come up cleanly. I love that. That's like an insurance policy when you're working with Linux. And then, of course, even if you do switch, I mean, you can just roll it back in the bootloader. <laughs> it's wild. All right. So I made you use Nano last week oh, for a little bit. For a little bit until I just made a little Nix shell to uh, <laughs> you know, install NeoVim. <laughs> yeah, you just pull that right in. That is one of the nice things. But and I don't have to worry, right? I'm not like installing it permanently on your system. It's just there while I need it. Do you see any reason we can't share this config? No, uh, no, no. Yeah, I took out like the secret stuff. So we will link to the config that we came up with in the notes. But you and I were looking at ways to make SSL termination easy when you're running multiple services. You know, like so many things want SSL. Like I'm running Nextcloud and I want to use a Node app and I want to use a phone tracking app that tracks your location. All, the, all of them require that you have HTTPS to your Nextcloud server. Right. And the context here is you're doing everything over Tailscale these days. You got this mesh network set up. So you already have a layer of encryption. So you like for your personal needs, you don't necessarily need TLS involved in yeah. every single connection because it's going over Wirecard already. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of these third-party apps don't really realize that. And in the, rightfully so, I think, you know, at least as a default, in the interest of protecting the end user, want to have some encryption in yeah. place before they start syncing data. Yeah, they won't even accept an HTTP URL. They won't even accept it. It's got to be HTTPS, which is, I, I get it. Yeah, that's fine. But I also have Jellyfin on here, and I want to I want to be able to access that externally, and that gets a lot harder if you don't have TLS. And I I have a few other services on my box, and pretty pretty soon you discover to do this, you need some kind of proxy or some kind of intermediary where the SSL will terminate, and then it will forward the request to your internal systems, your internal services. You and I looked at Caddy, which looked like it may be the simpler way to go. We of course 
seriously considered traffic. Yeah, another great option. And that's the thing, right? These days, there's there's so many different ways to, A, just get the certificates in general. There's a ton of great, like, Let's Encrypt or, you know, Acme clients out there. And then a ton of the web servers that exist now, they either have modules for or just yep. baked right in the ability to uh, to get those certs and auto-configure them for you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, we, we were tempted to go with Caddy, to be honest with you. The simplicity appealed to us. We were tempted to go with traffic, to be honest with you, because the integration and so many projects just kind of work, assuming you're using traffic, appealed yep. to us. It's got real nice, you know, obviously, it's got that Docker socket integration. Um, yep. There's a lot of things to like about traffic, for sure. However, there is a beautiful simplicity to good old Nginx. Good old Nginx. Um, and on NixOS. You can set it up so stupid simple that I don't really understand if you'd ever do anything. I don't know why you would. If you're just running your own little personal server, I don't know. I, I just can't fathom you'd want to do anything else. It was so great. We'll put the configuration in the show notes. But you essentially tell NixOS that you want to set up one of these Acme certs and where it should stick that. You tell it what DNS, DNS provider you're using. You give it the API or credentials necessary to access that DNS provider. You define a virtual host or two, like in my case, NextCloud. And you're done. And then NixOS will maintain this in perpetuity. Like if I were to wipe this machine away and reload with this config, it would set up all of my TLS, all of my HTTPS stuff all over again. All of my proxy stuff, all of my forwarding, all of the TLS termination right there all over again. It's really, really nice. So Wes, tell me a little bit about why we went this way. Uh, well, so one for one factor... Because you're using TailScale here, uh, you're not really exposing any of this publicly. So you didn't want to use the automatic default, like, uh, you know, a lot of these web servers, they'll just handle the sort of, oh, well, I'll manage, since I'm already exposing uh, port 80 and 443 for you, I'll automatically handle the little check, you know, to prove to Let's Encrypt or whoever's providing your certificates that you actually control and own that domain. Now, you can also use a DNS challenge here. And we looked at that and, you know, Caddy's got that, but it looks like it's in a sort of third-party model module that you kind of have to load in. And that was slightly more complicated with Nix and it was already a Nix system. Certainly traffic can do that as well. But looking at the NixOS manual, they're, they've got integrated with a client called Lego, which is just a little Go Acme client. This is already baked in there. And it's, it's really no more complicated than like the regular setup. And so you can just specify right in your NixOS config here are the domains that I want. Please go get these certs, whether they're you know, wildcards or regular certs. Uh, you can tell it where to go get all the credential files for logging into your DNS provider of choice. And Cloudflare was baked right in, so that was super simple. <laughs> and then it'll stash these all in like a regular place on your file system. And then NixOS also has mechanisms for referring to that. So you can say like, oh, yeah, yeah, I already set, set that up for you service that I'm using a NixOS config. Go look in the usual place to go find the certs for this domain. And the configuration is so simple and so straightforward that I can just link to it and share it with anybody. And it, to me, what I love about it is I can read it as a simpleton and completely understand what it's doing. And I can reproduce it, and I can even understand how to add additional service to that, services to that in the future. Yeah, I think the other part is it kind of abstracts things a little bit. Obviously, there's lots of tools to automate setting up Nginx, and it's not that hard, but the Nginx config can be a little verbose these days compared to some of the competitors. There's a lot of options that you might not really care about, but it might be in your interest to set. But wrapping it in the Nix language, A, it sort of 
summarizes things a lot. They've got recommended settings you can apply, like, oh, here's some optimizations. Here's settings you might want to use if you're doing a proxy. Here's some recommended TLS settings that'll make sure things are, you know, up to snuff security-wise. And then it just lifts things up. So instead of having to worry about all the Nginx-specific syntax and all these other things, you're just using the really comfortable Nixlang, which is quite handy. It's easy to work with. It's a little more, you know, has a little more affordances than something like JSON. Easy but to read. Really easy to read. And mm-hmm. you just kind of set things out and like, here's the name of the thing. Here's where I want to send my proxy request to. And uh, you're done. It's like the easiest Nginx config I never wrote. Yeah, exactly. You and I actually did check the output of the Nginx config that it, it writes. And it does write a very concise, but... Probably 30 times more verbose config than than what we ended up having to produce. And it just is so straightforward, Wes. It's so reproducible. It's easy to back up that one file and have that entire configuration saved. And now I have a valid SSL cert and all of these apps that require that, even when I'm accessing a tail scale IP, are totally happy now. Yeah, it also made it pretty easy when we wanted to sort of redo the same thing um, and, you know, just say like, oh, yeah, but on another port using that same certificate we are also hosting uh jellyfin over here so can you just reuse that make it all work for us and uh you kind of have to like copy some stuff and be aware of like what duplication you need in the regular nginx config but that's handled by the abstraction present in the NixOS module all right so tell me about the uh, proxy party yeah so as i was looking for some links to throw in just you know various resources we pulled up this was not what i found last week but i found Proxy Party, which is an Nginx redirector and proxier um, for a group called the Hack Club. And they've got like all, you know, sorts of various old domains, new domains, or just like you've got .com, .eu, that sort of thing. Okay. And so this is like one place to document and deploy all of their redirects. And I thought it was just a nice example of once you've sort of lifted the Nginx config into the Nixlang, well, you can just do normal programming language stuff. And they've written a module so that they just specify like, here's the redirect I want. And then it goes and like converts that into the necessary Nginx config. Jeez, that's and then awesome. Deploys this whole thing. It looks like they're even using Linode, which was a nice bonus find. <laughs> that's and so they, powerful. Yeah, right. And then they've just got like a NixOS setup. It's got Nginx installed. It builds this config just based on this key value pair of like, here's all the redirects and where we want to go. They've got some, you know, a couple nice little options like maybe you want to strip all the path or things like that. Obviously, there's a ton of different settings and uh, a ton of different tools that you could use to do all of this. It's just neat to see if you're already using NixOS, mm-hmm. how far you can take that without having to go outside the ecosystem. Not only that, but how easy it is to actually wrap your brain around once you set it up. Like, it was very intimidating at the beginning. I thought, this seems like to try to define this in Nix seems crazy. But after we got it done, I was like, this was simpler than actually trying to do it in Nginx. And on top of that, one of the number one conversations I see coming up in our Telegram group recently is, hey, guys, I have all these services. I think I need to get, like, an SSL cert. Like, how do I do this? And so often the conversation is go install traffic, right? Go to, like, this really complex route. And what I found so refreshing about this is it was 15 lines of config, and I'm done. And it is, like, you back that one file up, and I can reproduce it over and over again. And Nginx is great for this kind of thing. Like, there's no shame at all in the Nginx game. No, I mean, you know, it's performant, you know, it works well, and then if you kind of don't have to write the config, even better. And, you know, there's the usual sort of escape patches. So if you do need um, to just slap in a little bit extra config, there's an easy way to do that in Nix that just lets you sort of, you know, render raw dog some, some code right until, like, the end of the template. 
linode.com slash unplug. That's where you go to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out fast, reliable cloud hosting. They've been around for nearly 19 years, and I've had friends that have used them for like a decade and recommended them to me. But almost about three years ago, I finally had the opportunity to try out Linode. I've been using them consistently. <laughs> I mean, I went all in. I really loved the platform. I didn't get the 100 bucks either. I just signed up and tried it. But I think if you get the 100 bucks when you go to linode.com slash unplugged and you kick the tires, I think you'll become a convert. I suspect that's why Linode continues to advertise on this here podcast is because they know that when they finally get to you and you do try it out, you go claim your 100 bucks, you're going to love it. I mean, of course, they have all of the table stakes. They have tons of distributions to choose from. They let you burn the system down to the metal and install your own OS if you want. I've done that a couple of times. They have great documentation, 24-7 support, 365, like even on the holidays. Tier one, like you you call in and they answer your questions. There's all these things that add up, plus the features like S3 compatible object storage, the backups. A lot of that stuff you'd come to expect. Just a really, really good, solid implementation of all of it. But just part of Linode Special Sauce is how they bring it all together. The UI, the API, all of it kind of comes together and makes it accessible to somebody who's been doing this for 20 years. Or somebody who wants to spin up their very first website, blog, portfolio, whatever it might be. And they have pricing to match to. Super fast systems. And they got a dozen data centers, a dozen more coming online this year. If companies were like mascots, these would be the flying eagles. These guys would be the flying eagles. Like they're just soaring to new <laughs> new heights. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you could maybe there's a better animal out there. My point is great host. Maybe not a great analogy, but absolutely great host, especially for us Linux users. And it's a great way to support your local podcast. Linode.com slash unplugged. Ryan Hubert joins us this week. He's the CEO of Define Networking. And we've actually had him on the show like forever ago because he was one of the original core developers of an open source mesh networking tool called Nebula, which is a totally self-hosted solution until just recently. And we're going to get into that part of the conversation in just a moment. I first want to thank both Tailscale and Ryan. Because, you know, Tailscale also does a mesh VPN. Yeah, of course. And uh, Ryan is creating something over at Define Networking. And everybody was super respectful about that in this conversation. And totally just recognizes, like, they solve different problems for different people. It's one of the things we're going to get into, into in this conversation. But just something I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you to everybody involved. Because that's a rare thing where everybody can kind of figure that stuff out. And... I'm really glad it happened because what Ryan's been working on over to find networking with Nebula is a tool I suspect a lot of you could get some value out of. Imagine building your own mesh network protected by the noise protocol, completely hosted on your own, but scaling to potentially millions of nodes if that's what you want. And the last time we talked to Ryan, he was still working over at Slack, solving this problem for Slack. And now he's solving it for everybody. So Ryan Hubbard, the CEO of Define Networking, is joining us on the show. And Ryan, last time you were here, uh, I believe I introduced you as an employee at Slack. Yeah, that's right. And now the CEO of Define Networking. And we've talked about Nebula on the show before, but can you just refresh the audience on what Define Networking does and what Nebula is? Sure. So I'll start at Nebula. Um, you know, back at back at Slack, we had uh, numerous problems related to networking that we were looking to solve. Uh, one of which was we had an ever-expanding presence in the cloud, you know, in AWS and Google. And 
we wanted a way to connect everything that wasn't uh, vendor specific and we needed it to be performant. But one of the main drivers was we wanted to encapsulate security groups in, in whatever we did. So we evaluated a lot of things and ended up realizing we were going to have to write something. That was the origin of Nebula. So we, we created it back in, I hope I get this right, 2017, I believe, and quickly put it, uh, put it into uh, production because it was, it was actually needed to solve some, some problems with uh, connectivity to remote regions. So I think within six months, it was actually passing traffic. And then, you know, by the time Nate and I, Nate's, Nate's the primary co-author of Nebula, also uh, co-founder of, of Defined, which you just mentioned, uh, by the time we left, it was passing the majority of network traffic at Slack. And that's network traffic across regions, but also hosts sitting next to each other. So basically everything at Slack uses Nebula to communicate with everything else, by and large. That's impressive because you have to imagine that's a fair amount of traffic. And so so that's Nebula, the essentially the mesh VPN. And then Define Networking must have come along after this just started to gain so much traction. Yeah. So we wanted to open source Nebula all along. We got permission to open source it well before well before we did. And at some point somebody put the idea in our heads that we should maybe start a company around this. <laughs> and so, you know, we 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 were actually pretty slow to do it. I mean, we we had our first conversations about it a bit before it was open sourced and we weren't sure we wanted to do that, but you know, over time it it became more and more compelling and so we actually founded founded the company just after I spoke with you the first time. So I think we spoke November of 2019 and then the company was founded in January of 2020. And uh the the purpose of the company is so Nebula that the downloadable version that's on GitHub is everything you need to run run Nebula is there, right? Like you can run your lighthouses, you can run a fully fully formed Nebula mesh. You could scale it up to any size you want. It's the exact same Nebula Slack is running, but the part that it doesn't include is the management layer. And the reason it doesn't include the management layer is because we created core Nebula at Slack and then did everything through Slack's configuration management tools. And there just was no way to generalize that. So the goal with the company was to make Nebula uh, more more accessible for other entities who didn't maybe want to roll everything themselves. Maybe you don't have a sysadmin on hand who's handy with setting up configuration management and managing all the certs that you need for Nebula. So that's where something like an admin console comes in. Absolutely. And one of the other things is over the time uh, we spent at Slack, you know, running Nebula, we we gained a lot of insight into how to run Nebula and networks in general. And you know, asking people to kind of reinvent that wheel when we know a lot about how this operates in a production environment seems silly when we can, you know, we can give them a head start on that. So it's been a bit of time now. And on December 15th, you have a blog post that went live. And it, to me, it almost felt like a, a reintroduction for Define Networking to the public because it seems like there's now uh, a more consumer facing option using Nebula to create a network with some tooling provided by Define Networking. Tell me about this next step. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the last couple of years, we've been building an enterprise focused product, but I regularly get questions from friends and, and, you know, old colleagues and, and they're asking, when can I use this? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's more focused on enterprise, but, uh, the, the December 15th release date was actually purposeful. We thought, what if we put it out there and then, 
make this available for people who are going home for the holidays and then they can try it out, right? And it turned out to be actually uh, successful. So it was fun to watch the graphs go up over the holidays as people were back home and, and you know, installing it on different devices and trying it out. And here I just thought you were crazy for releasing it before Christmas, but no, that seems like a good insight. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we actually set that de- December 15th date well in advance. I think it was two or three months in advance. And to be clear, like that's not the market we're looking for, right? So this is, this is a nice side effect of how Nebula is built that we can kind of offer this, this version of it to everyone for free. So you just touched on it there for a second. Who do you see as kind of the ideal user of Nebula? Because it seems like it's a, I mean, if a, if a company with the network size of Slack is using it, it seems like it's maybe purpose built for very large customers. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. The history of Nebula is we created it for Slack, right? And so the reliability, the performance, the security, those were all top of mind. At the same time, all of us that worked on it wanted to use it. <laughs> so you had both sides of it, which is massive company that has these these very important requirements about how it needs to operate, but also I wanted to use it for my own network, right? And so it does scale up and down pretty seamlessly. You know, one of the one of the features we didn't have for a long time that that I'm sure you noticed is now there is relays, right? And the reason we didn't have relays, that that's when you can't hole punch to another host, right? The reason we didn't have that for a long time is Slack has absolutely no use case. And so, you know, their massive network, they control all of the network in AWS and Google and all those places. And so there's no need for them to really do what we're doing there. But enough users were were asking for it that it became a, a top priority. And interestingly, the thing that actually led to relays being implemented, uh, one of the folks that works at Defined, Brad, uh, he's in an office and he doesn't control the network there. <laughs> and so he had uh, connectivity issues. So necessity being the mother of invention, I think is the phrase. <laughs> and so so Brad actually uh, went and, and spec'd it out and created it. And, and we had some pretty strict requirements about how we wanted relays to work. Like we didn't want to run open relays. Uh, we wanted it to be authenticated, not encrypted. And so there's a lot to the relays that's actually pretty, pretty important to us. And to clarify, uh, the role of a, re- of a relay in this setup is so with Nebula, you have your mesh VPN. It's protected by, you know, the noise protocol. And then you may have, is, is, the, is the job of a relay, is it to allow um, devices in and out of that Nebula network that maybe don't have the Nebula client or aren't directly connected? Is that the job of a relay? No, sorry, I should back up. So this is for this is for the connectivity cases that hole punching can't get around, right? So this is oh right, okay, so crazy bad NAT or something like that. Yes, yeah, so crazy firewalls. The best example I have that everyone that I've dealt with a lot is AT and T's network uses carrier grade NAT. We we actually also added IPv6 for the underlay. We call it the underlay. So you, if you had IPv6 enabled, it would work. But relays were the last bit we needed to deal with bad NAT. Yes. Ryan, I wonder if you could touch a little bit on some of the intentions around designing what you are and are not managing in, in the new defined service and the and the admin panel. One thing I noticed right away was, you know, you're you're doing you're taking some of the load off me, but I'm still hosting my own relays and lighthouses. Now, the process is really easy. You've got a little script to run, a tool to run that gets everything configured. Um, but it seemed like that was a pretty intentional choice. It was, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> so, one of the reasons we we pushed for that, and we we had 
a lot of internal discussions about this, right? And and just for everyone's, uh, for the sake of, of discussion here, lighthouses are the nodes that allow um, everything in a nebula mesh to find everything else. So um, they just, they're the only thing that needs a routable IP. And the reason we we decided to have lighthouses as something that you run instead of us is, well, a few reasons. So first off, availability. The reason we never seriously considered any alternative at Slack was largely because we could not outsource our network availability to someone else. And the nice thing about having everyone host their own lighthouses is that allows them to own their availability. So you can host a lighthouse inside of you know, each of your AWS regions, you can host them. Slack, by the way, for as an example here, Slack has something like 100,000 hosts using eight lighthouses total that are globally distributed. Wow. Right. So it scales, it scales extremely well, but it's also about getting the answers quickly and, and, you know, positioning them. One of the nice things about this model is imagine the case where you lose internet connectivity, even momentarily, right? Most of the time, that's going to mean you can't make new connections. But if you have a lighthouse that's internal to each network, they continue to work, right? They continue to work independently. And so a lot of this was about the needs of enterprise users who can't outsource their availability to us entirely. You are speaking my language right now. I can see that being extremely useful. So from a kind of a implementation standpoint, I stand up a lighthouse and then... There must be an enrollment process is, is, and, and Define doesn't have any involvement in that. It's just all between my machines. So we do. So what we're handling is actually the CA side of things. And it gets a bit complicated here. And I mean, that's why we're managing it, right? But the, the thing to know here is we, there's, a, there's a version of Nebula you install on your hosts that has our management layer baked into it. And what that's doing is getting all of the roles, groups, keys, all of that, and and populating them on each host. Now, if you go and look at the configuration directory on each host, you're going to see a Nebula config. In fact, if you stopped running, it's called DN client, and just started Nebula and pointed it at the config YAML, it would actually just work, right? It's that similar to open source Nebula. It's just a, a configuration layer. So with Defined, what we do is manage the really the hard parts of what people are doing with Nebula. So, you know, one of the one of the things that we've seen is nobody wants to manage a CA, right? It's it's difficult. It's it's time consuming. Uh, you have to worry about where your key material is stored. And so what we've done is take our our experience with doing this at Slack and other places. And, you know, we've, we've stood up, we've, we stood up services that manage this for you and distribute the certificates to all of the hosts. And like, when you go to add a lighthouse, uh, you go into the admin console and provision, or you can use the API to provision it. And when you add it, then all of the other nodes are made aware of it. Like we handle sending out that configuration that gets populated on every host, but, Outside of configuration changes, those hosts and those lighthouses and those relays are acting autonomously. So our service is there to populate the config and, and sort of at a high level coordinate. But again, speaking to the reliability aspect, if our, if our service is down for a period of time, you can actually make new connections. Everything, your configuration is frozen in time, but everything continues to operate, including new connections. And I think that's something unique we offer. Bitwarden.com slash Linux. Go get started with free open source password management when you go to Bitwarden.com slash Linux. For an individual or for a team, Bitwarden is the easiest way to store, share, and sync your sensitive data. 
I migrated to Bitwarden a few years ago. Some of you might be considering migrating today based on current events. If you are, go check out bitwarden.com migrate. They make it exceptionally easy to come from password managers like LastPass. And of course, they do things better. And they're trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations around the world. And their code's open for the public to see and has been audited. You know, Wes was a little ahead of me on this one. I have to admit, <laughs> Wes was ahead of me. He started using Bitwarden before I did. It took me a little bit longer, but I eventually switched over, and I love it. I'm an advocate in so many ways, and that's why I'm really glad they're a sponsor, too, because I'd be recommending you use Bitwarden even if they weren't a sponsor. Don't tell them that, though. Don't, don't tell them that. I think one of the things that gives us confidence to use Bitwarden is that community. There's just a ton of support out there. I've had questions, and I've been able to get it answered within seconds. The other thing I like as a Bitwarden user is I'm seeing new features that improve the experience that like focus in on the core experience of a like sensitive secret manager and make that better. Updates to the mobile applications now make it possible to have a unique secure username, password, and email address for every website, app, and service you use across mobile, desktop, whatever. I've got Bitwarden installed as a flat pack. I've got Bitwarden in my web browser. I've got Bitwarden on my mobile devices. I can unlock my vault with my th with my thumbprint and on iOS with my face. <laughs> it's so nice. The reason why that's so nice is because you can be in the flow. You know, you're just trying to get to something. You just want to get in and get logged in. And to, to make it all integrated with the OS so that way it can use whatever authentication mechanism you prefer and then get you into your database, find that information and then provide it to the app or the website quickly makes it a very smooth experience. I don't want something that disrupts that and makes it take way longer just to get to the thing I need. And Bitwarden has just been working at making that process slicker and slicker. And I really think in their October update, they just, they kind of just nailed it. It's just in such a sweet spot now. So go try out Bitwarden, support the show, and maybe recommend it to somebody who could be doing a little bit better. Because I think we all know a good password manager is like the low-hanging fruit of the security world. Using a unique email, username, and password for every site, website, and service you use is probably the easiest and most straightforward thing you can do to improve your security online, in my opinion. And Bitwarden gives you the tooling to make that actually accessible for experts and for totally new users to this idea. So go recommend it to your work, your friends, your family. Become an advocate like I am and send everybody to bitwarden.com slash Linux. That's bitwarden.com slash Linux. All right. So I have another kind of question that I was kind of, when I was looking at this, how are you recommending people solve name resolution inside the Nebula network once they have something established? Yeah. So in open source Nebula, we've had... Uh, subdomain delegation for a long time. But in Defined, we don't have that uh, available yet. So it's it's on a very short-term roadmap. I think it's actually landing this quarter, but uh, it's not in there yet. So right now, the way most people are running it, including Slack, is uh, they are using configuration management on a large network, and then they're actually handling DNS themselves, right? So the the magical side of DNS, we want to do that as well. Again, it's one of those things where Slack doesn't use the feature, and so we have to be motivated to do it ourselves. <laughs> I suppose that makes sense. And you probably then need to, you know, to understand what all the requirements of that feature are and how to make the right thing that's going to work for the most number of possible clients. Yeah, one of one of the things about our philosophy that I, you know, I really want to make people aware of is I would actually call us feature averse. <laughs> and so, 
you know, when you think about the deployments of Nebula, so there, there are actually some massive deployments, especially once we started the company, we started to get uh, inbound interest from people that had deployed it at scales we were, we were pretty surprised by. And, you know, keeping all of that in mind, we, we are very, very, very feature averse, I would say. So um, unless there's a need for something, we are probably going to say no to adding it to Core Nebula. And the reason for that is, again, you know, surface area for security, uh, reliability, and, and performance. So I'm going to knock on wood. You're, you'll hear it in the background. But in five years of running at Slack, Nebula has not had an outage. Did either of you happen to read my blog post and, and see the footnote about the only Nebula outage? Oh, no, I don't think I got to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, spoiler, I caused it <laughs> myself. Oh, no. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't Nebula's fault, but on January, I, I have to look it up, but give give folks a link. Uh, there's there's an there are news articles you can attribute directly to me uh, because I rolled a bad build of Nebula. So that was about five, well, four years ago, five years ago, whatever it is. But but actually, that was the last time Nebula caused a production issue. I see that now. <laughs> I, I was uh, what caught, what made me smile is that uh, you publicly admitted to the original name being Cloudy Cloud, <laughs> which I thought was pretty great. <laughs> I loved that name. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty good because it's your own Cloudy Cloud. Yeah, it was uh, It was fun. And I think uh, um, Bodie McBoatface was, was kind of a popular thing at the time. So yeah, just a natural progression, I guess. But yeah, the um, you know one of the things that we, we really take pride in is Nebula itself. Like if you ever look at it running on a host, it's using very little memory. Uh, it uses a lot of zero copy and the performance is something that we focused on heavily. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to tweak. And one of the other things that we're doing at Defined is taking some of that knowledge of how we tweak Nebula to make it faster and, and really baking that into the configs that we put on, you know, on the host that we manage. That's great. I know you really do pay attention to the performance of it. That's something I've definitely picked up. Also seems nice in that, uh, you know, if you can reuse that config with the with the open source one, it's just sort of, you know, teaching teaching users uh, some of the options that are available too. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the one of the interesting things about Nebula is we actually default to AES for our our encryption layer. So, if you look at the noise protocol framework, they spec it for both ChaCha, Poly, I can't remember, 1305. I can't remember the whole thing, but ChaCha is basically the same uh, encryption that WireGuard uses, right? And is, is very popular. But we but Noise actually specifies AES as well. And so, you know, WireGuard and Nebula have that common uh, noise protocol underneath. The reason we actually used AES is, is pretty interesting. So at Slack, we created this for host-to-host -host communication. And on almost all modern CPUs, I think at least for the past decade, there are instructions called AES-NI. I think that's native instruction, but I'm probably wrong, that, that actually accelerate AES performance. And so the reason we did both was we wanted to, to take advantage of that on hosts that had it. And so it's, a, it's an interesting kind of sidebar, and I hope I don't go too in the weeds here, but the reason WireGuard went with ChaCha Poly is, is there, there are numerous reasons. Protocol agility has been a problem for ages in TLS. And so it's caused many of the TLS headaches over the years. One of the things about Nebula's AES and ChaCha implementation is you have to choose network-wide which one you're going to use up front. And so if you're using something like Nebula at Slack, everything is speaking to everything else using AES because all of those hosts have native AES instructions and it's going to be significantly faster than using ChaCha on those hosts. 
the reason that WireGuard went with ChaCha is actually, you know, it's it's pretty smart. So back then, they wanted mobile performance to be much better than it could be with AES. And most mobile processors didn't implement AES instructions, you know, around the time WireGuard was kind of being created. And Of course, right. And so nowadays, like you actually are seeing AES in almost every small CPU even, you know, is starting to, <laughs> you're seeing it in a lot of CPUs. Notably, not in the Raspberry Pi. <laughs> so it's it's actually available uh, on the die, but uh, I don't think they pay the license fee for AES. <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> that is fascinating, though. I mean, I think that just shows the amount of effort that has gone into thinking about these things and that Nebula is uh, is ready to scale and meet some performance challenges uh, when users have them. You know, one of the things that I'm focused on and, and was focused on November and December is uh, is benchmarking. So we've we've always kind of done comparisons of Nebula to previous versions of Nebula and also against, you know, similar things in the space. I mean, all the way back to Tink and OpenVPN. And I, I've actually had this Ansible repo for going on four years now that that tests Nebula. You know, more recently, I've kind of decided it's time to open source this Ansible repo. And the reason for that is is mostly because there are just no good benchmarks in this space. So most people, when they're comparing performance, and, and iPerf3 is is a tool that everyone's probably familiar with if they if they use Linux and networking, right? And it's the best and it's the worst because it, it it's it's easy to get a top line performance number of out of iperf three, but there's a lot of nuance there that gets missed. So, um, so what I'm hoping to do here is sort of give everyone a framework uh, via this Ansible repo where they can recreate these results themselves. And one of the things that that I'm actually doing with this repo to to publish results is. I'm running it on uh, five identical Dell boxes that I've had for about three years. So they're, you know, the same Intel CPU, the same 10 gig NIC. And I'm, I'm doing all this performance testing between them to give people an idea of the nuanced version of, of performance, right? So just because something can hit near line rate doesn't mean it's not cooking your CPUs to do that, right? And so you have to associate a cost with how much work it's doing versus, you know, the performance instead of just looking at the top line number. Yeah, more so than ever, really. Yeah, and and for the types of companies that that we're talking to, the the scale of companies we're talking to, I mean that that really adds up when you when you think about the cost, you know, even the electricity to run a massive network like that. And so one of the one of the other things that I've done with this, it's kind of fun. I have a uh, TP Link six outlet power strip where each outlet has a watt meter on it. And so when I run the benchmarks, I actually record how much power it's using to pass this amount of traffic. And I think that's actually kind of an interesting metric. So I don't know if that'll be part of the published data, but you know, it's kind of fun to look at. I use a similar uh, technique for when I'm benchmarking systems, you know, like laptops and desktops. Yeah. And I, I think like the the maturity of some of that stuff in, you know, CPU benchmarks and GPU benchmarks has been around forever. But but for some reason, network benchmarks are kind of, you know, just not really there. So kind of zooming out as uh, we wrap it up and we talk about, you know, who Nebula is going to be probably appropriate for. Do you see this also useful for the individual case? Uh, we've talked a lot about how it's probably appropriate at the enterprise level. But uh, what are your thoughts for the individual user? So. You know, I think I think if you're willing to run something like a lighthouse, then then yeah. But so Nebula itself is a is a relatively technical project, right? It takes some amount of work to stand up, and one you know it's got the pitfalls of, of certificate management, and that's one of the things we take care of. I'd say that you know 
folks are welcome to to use what we've what we've created at Defined, the the free tier that we've created. But just know that it comes with the responsibility of running your own lighthouses, right? And that's that is more than some folks want to do. But the the trade off there is less of a dependency on us to keep your your network operating. I think that's a good balance, Ryan. I'm really impressed to see Nebula grow. I'm really appreciative that you've touched in, you know, just touched in over the years and kind of let us know, hey, there's something coming or hey, this has changed. Because for Wes and I, it's a project we love to follow just personally. And so I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we got an update on the show. I wish it could have been sooner, but uh, let's try to do it again, but maybe do it before three years or so next time. OK, that would be great. And I can't wait to to not have benchmarks as the only thing on my mind so we can talk about other fun stuff, too. Sure. I, I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see where it all goes. We, of course, of course, will have links in the show notes. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And now it is time for Le Boost. Chris, I know we certainly got a lot of boosts this week, but do we get any baller boosts? Rotten Mood came in with 100,000 sats, and uh, I'm going to do my best, guys. I'm not always great at this, but I'll give it a shot. And he just simply said, Angela! (laughs) I don't know what it's about. I think that must be in reference to our suggesting that we would have a meetup near the studio. And I think Ange was part of that. It got mentioned. Oh, perhaps. I think, or no, I think the other thing is uh, perhaps the whole uh, family members using Plex that I have to switch over to Jellyfin. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. (laughs) How's that going? Oh, it's going good. In fact, self-hosted, the most recent episode, we did an update and uh, I'm now using the native Jellyfin client. On my uh, set-top box. That's uh, Swiftin? Yeah, you got it. Nice. And it's been interesting. That's exciting. Self-hosted.show. I think we'll do our Jellyfin follow-up, too, towards the end of the month, too. So keep sending in your Jellyfin feedback. We are collecting that right now. Uh, But I think, why don't we focus on the here and the present? And we got a great batch of feedback this week, starting uh, with, uh, hmm, Brent, what do you think? Uh, I would say sept. Which kind of sounds like seven in French, if you're willing to go that far. Okay. Sept boosted in with 18,000 sats. I've been thinking about switching to Jellyfin from Plex now that they have started renting movies, but I don't want to start over with my library of what I've checked and not, especially when I've run Plex for about four years. Mm. Can you relate to this, Chris? Because you've been running Plex for quite a while now. Uh, Speaking of self-hosted, we did link to some some scripts that will sync your watch status from your Plex library over to your Jellyfin library. That sounds handy. Yeah. I discovered that after I had made the migration. So like an animal, I just went through and marked. Oh, Chris. Can I just say the Simpsons? Knock it off. Too many seasons. Wait, like 33 seasons. That's a lot of like Mark watched. Can I just say it's too much. Dean L 70 boosted in as well with, 11,101 sats. Hey team, I'm looking at moving to an Arch distro. Uh Uh-oh. I think I've settled on Garuda, but I'm interested in your opinions. Keep up the great work. I know. It's all appreciated. Hmm. If you were going to recommend a non-vanilla Arch distro, I assume that's the prerequisite here. Otherwise, you would just... I was going to say, yeah, you know, shout out for vanilla Arch. Well, Well, I think it's worth having a discussion of why not vanilla Arch. Okay. The work, I guess? 
because we've talked to, well, we've talked about the benefits of, of learning, uh, by doing an arch deployment before. So uh, it's tempting, but uh, I would love to know a little bit more information, but have either of you tried Garuda? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I have no issue. I mean, give Garuda a shot. There's, you may not like, you know, I think for some folks, the default theme is like a bit much, um, but there's obviously a lot of care and craft that's gone into the setup and optimizations and tweaks and, and options that you have with Garuda. Uh, so even if you end up maybe exploring other options, uh, roll in your own later, might be nice to try Garuda on for a bit and see what you want to keep for yourself. Garuda is a lot of fun. It's kind of like if you were going to buy a used car and the person before you installed a turbo, put some pinstriping on it, put a spoiler on there, added some air intake, it replaced the sound system with like a real boom and sound system. That's Garuda Linux. And if that sounds appealing to you, then I think Garuda Linux is the right distro for you. And I mean that seriously. If you like something that's a little more basic, like the stock car, that's like the basic version of the vehicle and you'll add the features you want over time, I, I might consider Endeavor OS. Endeavor OS is pretty close to vanilla Arch with just a few changes to make it a little bit easier. I think also, though, you should consider at least giving Arch from scratch a go in a VM, just so you understand what these distributions are building on top of, and maybe the tooling a little bit better. And I I, I think you just need to make the decision if you want the pre-souped up car, or if you want the basic model car that you add the nice stereo, the nice tires, the, the lift system, the air intake, the turbo, the spoiler, then, you know, maybe you might consider in that scenario going with Endeavor OS. It is pretty powerful when you sort of like, like, oh, I can, not that you're, I mean, you know, you're not compiling the software, you're not making the, writing the software, but just knowing and feeling that you can sort of like build up a very workable, nice system sort of from scratch and understand at least at the high level the components that go into it. It's, it's something. It is nice. Even if you just do it in a VM, it's worth it, I think. Yeah. I also wonder, you know, I guess we should mention Manjaro in here. Dan, who's part of the Manjaro ARM team, mentions in the chat room that uh, Arch also added the Arch install tool to the live images. So Arch has never been easier to install. Great point. And, you know, Manjaro has a great community around it. Totally worth considering yeah. as well. Oppie 1984 boosted in with 2,000 sets. Plus one for the Linux and self-hosting community aspects of the network. I don't really say anything in Matrix, but I lurk and I learn. <laughs> I have no one in my day-to-day -day that is into these topics, not even my GMRS and ham buddies. So it's really nice to know I have a community of like-minded people out there, even if it's only virtual. Well, thanks, Oppie. We, uh, we feel that too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Our Matrix community is such a solid group. It's so funny because I love our Telegram group as well, and the IRC room even still persists. Anywhere where, you know, JB folk congregate is I know. A, a blessed space. Yeah, it's special. It's a special colony space. Uh, but the Matrix has that, like, just extra edge to it that I really like. Um, but also, I, I totally grok what you mean. Like, you kind of hope, like, your ham radio folks would be more into free software and using Linux to do all this stuff than Windows. You kind of hope, though, because it feels like in the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap there. You kind of forget that, or, you know, sometimes I run into people who are really into like some of the smart home, like automations and IoT things, but they're, yeah. they're not running home assistant yeah. on Linux. That's not like the part that they've explored. And you're just like, yeah. oh, wait, you can't, you can do this other ways, but why, why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so true, Wes. This is so true. Wolfman 2G1 boosted in with 2,000 sats. 
I started out as a sysadmin, then became a network engineer, then became a Linux systems engineer, and now an engineering manager. Never have I ever written a Bash script. In fact, I barely know Bash. Ansible and Python have been able to do everything I've ever needed to automate. All right, now these never have I ever segments just got real interesting. Yeah. Just, Going down. I feel like we just got to a real confession here. Um, I I also Wolfman took many 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 years before I wrote my first Bash script. It was simply because I needed to save myself from a greater woe that I finally tackled that problem, and I felt like a poser for years not writing my own Bash script. I wouldn't even admit it on, I mean, this was years ago, but I wouldn't admit it on air. And even today, I don't want to tell you how long it was. I'm still very sensitive about it. So that is a great never have I ever. Really appreciate that one, Wolfman. And yet somehow you're so fluent in PowerShell. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 you know, Apple script. Don't forget that Apple script. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> Dark Matter PHP dev boosted in with 1,234 Satoshis. Here are some sats for joy of hearing Wes read some Terry Pratchett. A new regular feature, perhaps? That was choice. Oh, dark matter. Love <laughs> I, that. So the background to Wes reading that quote in last week's episode was, Wes sent that to me to make a point in a private chat, and I saved it earlier in the week and put it in the doc to have Wes read it in the actual show. <laughs> so sneaky. <laughs> I was like, this is good. We got to put that in there. Uh, all right, live <laughs> This name gets me so. This is a great name. Legit Savage. Legit Savage. Oh, Legit Savage boosted in with 10,000 sats. Uh, I use track.tv or trackit.tv. That's T R A K T.tv to sync my watch status between Jellyfin, Plex, and Cody. Um, I had to build the library in each first, though, so keep that in mind. But this is a really good tip. It is a hosted service, but it's been around for years. And it lets you just keep all of your different services in sync for what you've watched. Now, and for somebody that doesn't need this, you're like, why would this be a thing? But then if you're trying to complete Enterprise, you totally understand why. So thank you, Legit Savage. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff where like, you know, uh, maybe you don't care that much about sharing your what you what random sitcoms you've watched. Yeah, that's not why I would want to use TrackIt. I just want to use it for myself because I'm lazy. Exactly. Anything to avoid doing what I just did last time with this damn jellyfin jellyfin challenge at 21. I just had to remark. It so sounds like things. a kid task, you know? Oh, it was. But it required them to be like, nope, seen it, dad. Okay, then I'd mark it, watch, and then I'd play the next one. Okay, have you seen this <laughs> oh, one? Oh, my goodness. Nope, this seen it, dad. a whole family affair. No, just Bella, but it still took forever. <laughs> I just used one kid, but <laughs> it, was, it was a thing. All right, 47 boosted in with 1,000 sats. I just recently rebuilt our home server with an Odroid H3 with Nix OS. That sounds familiar. Yeah. A data store on ButterFS, soon to be a raid, Jellyfin for media playback, SyncThink for backups, TailScale for remote access for everything, and even NextCloud for experimenting with it. I'm pretty proud of it. And the themes of quality, ownership, longevity, and repairability are things that I just realized I was thinking about while setting it all up. Just got to get the offsite backups running. Thanks for the show. Chris, did you boost into the show? Called number 47. This sounds exactly like you. I know, right? 47 and I are in the same exact headspace right now. And I have to say, it really feels great. It feels like, you know, stuff is just fresh and new to learn, like just a whole new world of opportunity. However, one area I could legitimately use some help, and I feel like I really just don't have a good answer, is what are y'all using for offsite backup? Because I use Duplicati. 
And what I like about Duplicati is it integrates with cloud services really easily. It does local AES encryption, and it gives you a web UI to back it all up. However, <laughs> I don't think there is a backup tool that has more horror stories about being unable to restore your data than Duplicati. Like, why, why, would you, why would you need to restore? That's not what you do with backups. You just back them up and never check them, Chris. Yeah. Come on. If that's your goal, it sounds like Duplicati <laughs> is uh, aces. But if you want to actually restore the data, it sounds like you need to be using something else entirely. Um, in part because like you got to get Duplicati reinstalled. You got to get the database restored. Like a bunch of metadata has to work. Like it just sounds like it's a big overhead. I've been thinking about Restic, Auto Restic, and a couple of those tools. Uh, but I'd really like to hear the audience's feedback on what you're doing for offsite backup and something that could maybe be scalable. Because uh, for my photos, I experimented with storage or storage or whatever. But I'm just not comfortable recommending that to everyone just yet. It still feels too new. Too new. Like I need a year or two of using it before I'm comfortable recommending that as a way you back up your stuff. So I'm curious what you're using today. So please boost in or send us an email. Let us know. What are you using for offsite backup? Does it have a web UI? Because that'd be a huge win for me. Probably doesn't because I've looked old, at all of them. Old but. hates the command line, Chris. Over no, here. you know, you know, it's funny. Not, no shame here. No, no shame. It's it's for like just restoring things and whatnot. I like having the ability to browse through the data set visually and select the directory I want to restore and just that directory, because I never want to restore an entire system or all the directories. I always just want to restore a couple of directories. I just want to click on them and hit restore and have them come out somewhere. And that's what I want. But I am willing to try something like Autorestic. I have it all installed right now. I just oh. haven't set it up yet. So I'm thinking about that. But I, I thought I'll pause and I'll defer to the JB community and see what people recommend. Zach Attack boosts in with 30,000 cents. Whoa. Whoa. I know. Sneaky. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Listening to you talk about Graphene OS finally made me decide to start looking at it more seriously. I got an old Pixel 3a running it right now, and I'll be moving my primary phone to it soon. It'll be hard giving up Android Auto, but I really like Magic Earth. Also, this is allowing me to move more into open source software on Android and find alternatives for applications that I probably never really needed to have on my phone to begin with. Zach Attack, amazing to hear that. Uh, I'm glad you're liking Magic Earth. I, I know it's a little bit of a transition, but I still think it displays stuff better than the proprietary apps in a lot of ways. It is hard to give up Android Auto, though. That has been rough. I do miss that. I'm planning to do a Graphene OS update soon, though, so do send in uh, your feedback and your experiences if you've been using it for a little bit, because I'm kind of collecting all of that right now, so we can kind of do some meta coverage to see how it's been for other folks as well. Yeah, sounds like uh, Blue Mojo also sent in 500 sats just to say thanks for talking about graphing. So, well, yeah. Thank you, Blue Mojo. It's, uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, it's fun just us both doing it, but uh, knowing that there's folks out in the audience, too, who are yeah. all trying the same thing. Yeah, it's been really nice to see. And to hear everybody's experience with the different hardware has also been fascinating because each one of us is trying it on a different device for the most part. Like we've all got our different backgrounds and stories. and Yeah, different workflows, mm -hmm. different needs. <laughs> we got 2,000 sats from Ice Cube just to say thanks for all the fish. And Funky Bee boosted in with 9,000 sats. Hey-oh. Hello, Chris and team. I'm a longtime JB listener from Trinidad and Tobago. Here is my first boost with sats I've earned on Fountain. Keep up the great work. And keep that content coming. Oh, thank Funky you. B. Wow. You know, I had a I had somebody ask me recently, what's the difference between the fountain earn sats and like the brave basic attention token, which I'm not a very, very big fan of. I thought that was a great question. Yeah. 
So uh, Fountain FM streams you sats as you listen from sponsorships. When, when people buy sponsorships in the Fountain app to like feature their pod <laughs> or their clip or whatever, they pay Fountain in sats and then Fountain streams those sats to listeners. So why is that different than the bat token, the basic attention token from the Brave browser? Well, that's a great question. So the difference is, is that the basic attention token is an artificially created token by a group of people that pre-mine that token and own that token and can buy and sell that token depending on market liquidity. And when things are up, they'll sell. And there's really not much you can do with that token, right? There's kind of only a few exchanges that even accept it, doesn't really do anything outside that ecosystem. It's an ERC-20 token that lives on top of Ethereum. It's just not a very compelling token. Sats are a part of a Bitcoin. There's 100 million Satoshis for every Bitcoin. And every Bitcoin is unique. It has a mathematically provable address. It is scarce. And it has been mined by a miner. There's no pre-mines. There's no group of people that created this coin and gave themselves a percentage of that coin before they made it publicly available. Even Satoshi, who's no longer around, didn't pre-mine Bitcoin. Satoshi had to mine every coin they owned. And that makes it fairly distributed, and it makes it something that is unique. In anything that's come after Bitcoin, there's somebody behind it and a team of people that have created it and are managing that token. And maybe there's something with what, with what the uh, Brave browser is doing. But I'm not really interested in a bat token. You know, I'm not really interested in the in like their cryptocurrency, right? I want a Satoshi out of that. That's something that is an open network, fully distributed and available to anyone. Sort of like Linux, right? It's kind of the difference of a proprietary piece of software that is created by a company. And maybe they even maybe proprietary isn't fair. Maybe they even open source it, right? Like bat. But they're the only people that use that. And they're the only people that contribute to that open source project versus Linux, which is contributed to by thousands of people and companies, right? And is used by thousands of individuals and millions of individuals for different things. And there's a difference there that I think matters a lot when you really get down to it. So I think that's a great question. And I'm really, really glad that Fountain has made it even easier to send in Boost now because now you can add, you can top off your uh, Fountain wallet uh, directly within the app. and. I don't recommend that you hold a bunch of Bitcoin or Satoshis in your fountain wallet at all. I'm recommending you buy a few bucks and you send them to the podcasters you like. That's my advice. Uh, Spamproof at Fisa.sat boosted in with a row of ducks. Hey, oh, and said, I'm happy to provide a little bit of liquidity to the Jupiter 01 node on lightning and value for value is the way forward for the ultimate open source self-sovereign right to repair issues on all the things. Totally. Agree. Thank you so much, Spamproof. I love it when people get it. Been doing this for a long time. I've seen a lot of things come and go, and uh, I got a pretty good track record on this stuff. And I'm, I'm really bullish on keeping podcasting decentralized, not making any company like Shopify or Spotify or stripe or paypal or apple or any of those companies kind of like a gatekeeper for any of this stuff i'm i feel like that'd be a bad direction so i'm glad you get it and then linux teamster came in with five thousand sats and this is a great one guys i mean it starts with a great name and uh, how can yeah. it not get better from here i actually think this might be one of my favorite boosts of the week not because of just this boost but because linux teamster sent in boost to 
Dakota Radio, Office Hours, Self-Hosted, Bitcoin Dad Pod. Like they went on a boosting spree and they sent their very, very first boost into this show. And they write, I love this podcast. I especially love how willing you are to push the boundaries and take risks by trying new things. I've been loving the member feed this past year. I think it's great that you have an option other than Patreon and PayPal. And uh, they also just sent a 5,000 sat boost and just say, hey, this is my very first, very first boost, by the way. And I think that's incredible because I got a note in Matrix this week from uh, Bebop. is what I call him. <laughs> I'm so bad with the nicknames, but I call them Bebop. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you guys want to read it yourself. And they write, Chris Lass, I'm not sure if this is the right place to tell you this, but uh, I just wanted to say after checking out one of your recent Office Hours episodes this past summer, I have gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole to the point where I now have my own umbral node, my own lightning node, and I've opened up a channel to you and I'm subscribed to the Bitcoin Dad podcast and have plans to pick up a hardware wallet. You mentioned that you were excited to be playing with all of this tech, and I gotta say, I know how you feel. I just wanted to say thank you. I'm also currently an SRE for the self-hosted show. And I'm trying to wrap my head around how to send in boosts and stream sets. My podcast player of choice is not part of the 2.0 spec just yet. Well, good news. Podcast Attic is getting uh, in on the game here pretty soon. But you can always go, go, go grab Albie. And I got another note from an individual this week that said, Chris, I was super skeptical of the boost. I thought you were just shilling crypto scams on the show. But I listened to your Office Hours episode about We Hate Crypto 2, and now I get it. And now I am having more fun than I've ever had in technology since I first discovered Linux. And Brent, I think you can echo that. Like when we discovered this self-hosted world of Bitcoin, Lightning Nodes, and all of that, it was like being back in the late 90s for Linux. Do you remember that feeling? Yeah, that was last January. And, and I got to say, I came in pretty skeptical, to, like most people should, you know. And uh, But the more you and I dove into it. Man, I remember just days going by, you and I in your office, just super excited. Like we had, we had computers apart, like putting them together like it was, I don't know, a LAN party or something from the old days. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And that fun continues, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And I, I really encourage people to play around with it. I'm not suggesting that uh, you put tens of thousands of dollars or anything like that into it. You know, a couple of bucks, go have some fun. Play with some open source technology and support a local podcast that is supporting decentralized podcasting. And Wes, before we go any further, we got a live boost into the show, didn't we? Yeah, Todd Rock's boat via fountain with 222 sets. You are getting old, oh. but that's okay. Okay. Skip scale, save your time, capital, and energy for something you're excited for. Well, that's hard to hear. <laughs> but that's the start. That's the start. I think I think Toad Rock's boat has kicked off the start of this feedback chain. So, you yeah. know, if you've yeah. got contrary opinions or you want to second that, let us know. It sounds like Toad is certainly rocking that boat. Yeah, for sure. No kidding. And our boat. Yeah, that my boat feels a little rocked and I feel like there's some honesty and truth in there that's worth considering. You know, it's one of those things where I can tell you all of the reasons I shouldn't do something and I can quantify them <laughs> and I can even I can even put a dollar amount to them. And yet I, I could not quantify all of the great things that could happen and what they might be worth. For me, it's always about the meetups. I know we always have like an end destination, but it's the meetups that are the most memorable part for me. So I feel like if we do the meetup trip and just do a bunch of meetups and don't go to scale, I'd be fine with that. 
I don't know what a meetup trip. We just did a meetup trip in California, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like. I don't know. Because I, I do want to see people. Of course. Live show? Live show? I, you know, and I think there's something. I, I feel stressed about LUP 500 around there, too. LUP 500 is the weekend before scale. We did the math. We figured that out. And I feel like if we're going to scale, my focus can't be on both of those things because they're both huge. And I and because scale requires travel and getting you guys there's all there. There's a lot there, of, yeah, yeah, right. There's no way I, I just have to focus on that. And then, like, we don't do anything for LUP 500, and then I feel bad. We just skip it. 501 is the new 500. Yeah, 501. <laughs> well, we save it, and we just really to mess with everyone, and 500 comes out in, like, <laughs> six months. Yeah, yeah. Only the people in the know right. that have been listening really carefully will even have any idea what's going on. What could go wrong? What That's could go never wrong? backfired on us. <laughs> if you want to send a boost into this show, the show, the setup that I just love right now is getalby.com, go grab the Albi extension, throw a couple of sats in there, and then go to the podcastindex.org page for Linux Unplugged. And it's real easy to just boost from the website. You don't got to switch apps. If you do want to switch apps, fountain.fm just released a brand new version, blow away great, and then Podverse continues to refine and make the cross-platform GPL podcast 2.0 experience excellent. So those are my two top recommendations. And boys, I don't think we have any picks this week. So let's just wrap it up and tell people how they can get a hold of us. Brent, where do they go? Well, I think it might be something like linuxunplugged.com slash contact if you want to get a hold of us there. Yeah, boy. And of course, you can always watch us live over at the Jupiter.tube on the Sundays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. And Wes, we got to tell them about Linux Action News. Yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't talk about any Linux news today, like like at all. But there has been some. Yeah, there's always some. There's always stuff going on, and you can find out just what you need to know. LinuxActionNews.com. That's right. There's more show over there. Things that change Linux and open source for this week at LinuxActionNews.com. As for us, we love hearing from you. So that feedback, those boosts, those are all a big part of the show. And of course, links to what we talked about today at LinuxUnplugged.com/slash/four nine three. How about that, huh? Getting way damn too close to 500. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Unplugged Program. We'll see you right back here next Sunday. So they've got their like this new little client, their defined networking client, DN client. Um, but it's, it's really using the open source Nebula. And it's basically just sort of like they provide a service that manages the configs and handles the certs for you. And then it just syncs that all down and starts the Nebula client pointed against those things. But you get like an API with that. And so they've oh, yeah. implemented like this is just like a little Go client that actually calls their API to do it. And you can make the same API calls. So like if you want to set up something to automate adding hosts. So in other words, you could have a system set up that would deploy a host and then it would run that and just join your Nebula network and be available as a node. Yeah, you make an a- like you get like a REST API call. You get like an enrollment code and then you just like pass that as a command line argument to the DN client uh, Go binary. And they've got, you know, they've got them for ARM. They've got them for uh, AMD 64. 
so it's pretty easy to get. That's started. pretty nice. Yeah. So if you want to try it and you want to see their managed product with the UI and all that stuff, you can go to Define Networking's website at define.net and they do have a sign up there. Yeah, totally free. Just join up. You get like a, up to 100 devices, I believe it is. So yeah. oh, pretty nice. They also, I just happened to notice as I was poking around the docs, which have been getting better. That's been one thing that mm-hmm. Open Source Nebula. I mean, you could go look at the repo and it was pretty clear, but uh, not the best documentation necessarily, which is, you know, something that improves with over time for all projects. But they also have stats support. So if you're running something like Graphbind or Prometheus already, or you've been interested in playing with that, I mean, who doesn't want stats on their mesh network? (laughs) 